ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Today we have a special treat back by popular demand. And, and actually this is Libby's, I don't know, third or fourth or maybe even fifth time on the show. Uh, she was one of our very, very first guests uh, back over a decade ago when we launched the show. And Libby Gill has written a new book called The Hope Driven Leader, Harness the Power of Positivity at Work. Libby, welcome back. Thank you, Chicky. I can't believe what you just said. It's been a decade, but you're right. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, and, and the cool thing about you is you are one of probably a handful, maybe five out of 400, that I actually have uh, an offline relationship with as well, where we've met and, and you know, we talk about our, our kids and, and mm-hmm. everything. Life. Um, yeah, we, we do life together. And, and I think that that really... Uh, has just made our relationship extra special. I mean, you're an amazing author and you're an amazing speaker. Um, but the Hope Driven Leader it, has been a passion of yours for a while. I remember when you first started talking about this. So tell us a little bit about what led up to it. Um, give our listeners who don't know you just a little thumbnail of Libby Gill. Sure. I um, you know, I had a, a kind of a rocky childhood dealing with the uh, family members with mental illness and alcoholism and, and some tough situations. And, you know, got through that, worked through it, as people do. Everybody's got their stuff. And uh, and I, I ended up working in corporate entertainment, and I did that for my first career, working in television and heading communications at Sony and Universal, Turner Broadcasting. I worked on everything from uh, Jerry Springer to Dr. Phil. You know, it was a crazy <laughs> run and a lot of fun, and I got to the point where, it was time to do something that felt a little bit more soul-satisfying, more purposeful, and I always loved developing my own teams. I always tended to have the youngest, greenest team of anybody at the studio, so so helping people sort of grow up their professional lives, but also including who they were as human beings, became a real passion. So when I was casting about for a new career, coaching was just on the horizon, and I thought, oh, that sort of works for me, and I I dove in head first, and I'm so glad because it's now been, I can't even believe it, 17 years I've had an executive coaching business, and so going into all sorts of organizations, dealing with leaders at at different levels, I just found this dearth of uh, this real lack of, of hope in the workplace, and I had written a book about my family and dealing with all those stories of the past called Traveling Hopefully and, and always sort of pegged hope as my, my jet fuel for the journey of both work and life. And then as I was coaching and, and always trying to develop skills, I really had the good fortune to kind of stumble on as I looked deeper into the, the um, research about hope that there is, in fact, a body of science called hope theory that comes out of medicine and, po- and positive psychology. And that took it to an entire, uh, entirely new level as I, I began to infuse the principles of hope theory into the corporate world and into my coaching practice. Well, that has been just an amazing journey. And yeah, I love how you start the book of talking about harnessing hope. And and just that 
action word of harnessing, I think puts us in a really different place because prior to being exposed to this book, I think people either think they have hope or they don't. Not that it's something to be harnessed. Or, yeah, exactly. Or they think of it as something squishy or abstract or kind of feel good. And in fact, um, knowing that there's, there's science behind it and that there's an action component, and you hit on it exactly, there is absolutely an action piece to it. And, and the theory uh, uh, from the science of hopefulness tells us that it's first about a fundamental belief that change is possible. And some people think, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah of course, who doesn't believe that? But if you, you think about your own world and your own life, there's somebody out there that's kind of the defender of the status quo, the person who thinks, well, you know, you can't fight City Hall or it is what it is. <laughs> it's kind of, to me, that's sort of the nails on the chalkboard. So you have to have a belief that change is possible. And even if it's just a little teeny belief, you know, you practice it and you'll see it grow. And then beyond that, unlike optimism, which, and that's where people confuse the two, but optimism is a generalized sense of, hey, everything's going to be fine, it's all going to turn out okay, but it's not linked to action. So what hope tells us is, or hope theory tells us, is that it's having a future-focused vision, a belief that change is possible, and an expectation that it's your actions, it's your beliefs linked to your behaviors that are going to get you to that outcome. Exactly. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I happen to do another show today. I don't normally do two in one day. Uh, but we were talking about this issue of uh, being a victim, right? And so being a victim is the opposite, really, of, of living and harnessing hope because you think that everything happens to you and you, you just kind of catch everything as it goes by rather than being that the catalyst right and and actually becoming the catalyst for hope which i think is is your whole message that if you're going to harness the power of positivity at work you better be that hope driven leader that this is just the way that you work because you can change the outcome right and and i i feel like there's there's really no neutrality you're either feeding hope or you're starving hope and we all know those leaders in the workplace, the hope is not a strategy, hope is not a plan. But my, right. my counter to that was always, well, good luck. Try giving your strategies and resources and tools to a workforce that's feeling hopeless. It doesn't go very right. far. Right. So the first step is to really, it, it is to harness that, that, that energy and that, that activity, the action steps around hope, and then add the overlay of the strategies and the tools on top of that. So my, my question to you is so many people, and you talk about this squishiness issue. One of the reasons why people look at this kind of thing as squishy is they think it's not measurable. What's your take on that? Well, I happen to know that it is measurable, which is so exciting. And when I, when I dove into this science, it's a little bit like the happiness research that is, is so well known, but the hope research is, is not quite as much out there. And I, I'm, I think I'm the, the first person to, to cross it over into the, the business world. But there was a, um, he's passed away now, but the, one of the pioneers of hope was a fellow named Dr. C.R. Snyder. And as a positive psychologist at the University of Kansas, he decided
decided while he was on sabbatical, he was going to go out and study up on hope. So he went to his library at the college and found out, guess what? No books on hope, nothing academic or scientific, plenty from the poets and the philosophers and religious texts, which is great, but there wasn't any sort of measurement or instrument around it. So good scientist that he was, he created what he called the adult dispositional hope scale. I just call it the hope scale. And it's basically 12 questions that you answer that I was able to uh, reprint. I got permission to include that in my book so you can take this hope scale and see how you stack up. And of course, that's that's just one way. I've got lots in the book about different ways you can measure and sort of mold your own level of hopefulness. In fact, right. every chapter ends up with a, a summary with a hopeful belief and a hopeful behavior. I was just going to mention that. Uh, I love books that, uh, you know, they draw you in to actually applying what you've read. And your hopeful habits section that you just referred to uh, is just that. I mean, you can actually, you know, pen in hand, make notes to yourself about what you're going to change about, about the way you think and the way you behave. So let's talk a little bit uh, about culture because so many of us live in the midst of change challenges and and in some cases chaos. So how do you turn that into a hope driven culture? Well, the first thing I think that people need to do, and this also just translates into your personal life is, is look at why we, um, why we back down in times of change or challenge? Why is it so threatening to us? And it's really just the physiological basis. You know, we forget that we're animals, but, you know, we're just plain old mammals. And we're not particularly fearsome animals at that. There are a lot of animals that have a, a far more tuned survival instinct. Right. What we've got is is negativity bias. We tend to look at things that are new or different or unproven, the path we've never gone down, that triggers all of our alarm bells. You know, that's when fight or flight or the other one that people forget about, freeze, come into play. And, you know, it's a big risk. It could be uh, going after a new client, having to give a speech, going out, you know, building a relationship, any of those things that trigger something that's a little bit outside the norm of our daily existence, anything new, our body identifies as, you know, it's danger flashing lights. And that's when the hair on the back of our neck stands up or our palms sweat. You know, we, we get a rush of adrenaline and cortisol just so we can meet that challenge, either by fighting or fleeing or freezing. You know, and I always picture like a bunny rabbit or a deer. They just freeze and blend in with the, you know, the trees and the grass. But we do that as human beings. And when you understand that that is our natural reaction to change, including in the workplace where our brain perceives danger, it doesn't matter if it's real danger or it's perceived danger, we're going to react in pretty much the same way. And when people are armed with that, they get, oh, yeah, okay, this is, I'm, my, my heart is racing because, you know, I have to do this scary thing. And it's something as simple as making a phone call to someone I perceive as out of my league or difficult to, you know, to respond to. We react in that same way. And in the workplace, that also includes uncertainty, which to me is one of the biggest triggers for fear and stress. It's not just the change. It's the fact that we don't know what's going on. We're on these shifting sands. And it feels very ominous to us as human beings. And one of the role of the leader 
is to create a sense of stability, even in times of change. You've got to be the rock for other people. And most of that is through through transparency, through communication. Even if you're saying, hey, guys, we got six more months of this, but bear with me. We'll get through it together. Just right. that can signal it's going to be okay. Right. So that is really the language of the hopeful leader. So you then shift into leading high-passion, high-performance teams, and you talk about those teams actually having a personality. What are, what are some of the characteristics that, that would make that personality? You know, every, every team has its own, its own feel, and it's, it's fun. Like the work we do where we're dealing with different kinds of people and, and certainly in coaching. You know, one day I'm dealing in media and the next day it's automotive. And they are very different in their culture, in their, the way they process information and the way they talk to each other. But to me, the, the thing that I found, and the research backs this up, is the most important thing about teams is is communication. And one study I found that just knocked me out, and I talk about it in The Hope Driven Leader, is a study that came out of MIT. And what they did is they studied teams across, uh, really across the globe. And they looked at teams and they wanted to study what made teams successful, knowing communication was a huge factor. But they, they put devices on people, literally this thing they wore around their neck that measured how, how loud the, the volume of their voices, the direction of their, their heads, the level of gestures. And they found three things that really I- I informed them. And they, what the takeaway was that how teams communicate is as, as important as what they communicate, which is kind of a mind blower because you think, oh, it's just the content. But it wasn't just the content. It was the interaction. And they saw that a level of energy, including that sort of volume and excitement and and participation, was one factor. Another was engagement, not the workplace engagement that we think of, but the engagement of the team, meaning that they dealt with others in relatively similar amounts of time and energy. So it wasn't just the leader droning on to this whole group, but it was people talking to each other, including something that we think is, you know, kind of verboten in the workplace, little side channel discussions, you know, where somebody would lean over and say to somebody else, hey, Chicky, we need to follow up on that. As opposed to leaders saying, one meeting, folks, you know, let's everybody be quiet. The fact that it would inspire a little side note conversation was a good thing. And then finally, exploration. Team members that go out to other business units, other teams, other resources, and then bring that knowledge back to their team, those were the three things, energy, engagement, and exploration, that really created a huge difference in the way, in the success of teams. And and some of the actions were so simple. One team said, oh, we need our people to cross-connect more. So they changed their their employee cafeteria from little tables of twos and fours to community tables, where you really pretty much had to sit down and talk to somebody who was sitting at the table. And they found people just got to know each other. And it's that old, you know, you break bread together, you get to know each other. And it, it, it vastly changed the level of interaction. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because so much of business today is done by conference call. And you've got a chapter called Escape from Meeting Hell. I would like to escape from conference call hell because so much of the nuance of, of communication and getting people excited is being together. And, and so we are having to find ways to communicate hope uh, electronically, which, uh, you know, sometimes you think you've communicated and the person on the other end wasn't even paying attention. So, uh, and that is the essence of communication is, is what you heard, what you said, what they heard. And you're right. It's words are so slippery and it's so easy to misconstrue a meaning. So it's a, I, I cite an example from um, a group that I spoke to a, a, at a nuclear energy company, a uranium enrichment company, which knocked my socks off because they gave me a tour of this nuclear plant, which was just so fascinating. And I watched these two technicians do what, you know, it's, it's called ABA communication. So one would say, and I, I don't know what they were doing, but I I'm going to do this. And the other person would say, I recognize you're going to do this. And then the other person would say, and I just did this. And they'd say, this has been done. So it was this check and balance that went back and forth. There was no misconstruing that message. And if we could be anywhere in that ballpark, we'll be much more successful at getting our message heard and received. Exactly. Exactly. And so taking that a step further, um, you talk about uh, biases and, and biases that we're not even aware of. Yeah, biases are really, it, it's one of those, um, you know, it's pervasive in the business world and, and in culture. And you're right, we don't think about it. We don't think of our racial biases. We don't think of, you know, there are just so many. We don't think of our, our gender biases. All of those things are sort of covered up. We just, they're not in the forefront. But I do a lot of work in women's leadership where the issues of women in advancement, I'll often go into a company where a male boss will proudly say, 70% of our workforce is female. And when I say, yeah, and what percentage of that is in management and leadership? They've got to stumble for a minute and then admit, and I'm not trying to put them on the spot. I just want the data. You know, it could be 3 or 5 or maybe 15%, but it's certainly not 50-50. And knowing what those biases are and bringing them onto the table, because it's, it's not always intentional. So much of that is unconscious and unintentional bias. And there's, there's a study that says, you know, men look around the workforce, they see a lot of women, and they think, well, problem solved. We did that job. But not, because there's so many women, as we know, and most women know, that are in either support roles or roles that don't have a profit and loss or a strategic. They're just not in line for the C-suite. They're stuck at a certain level. And once we know that and we can, leaning in is great. I say lean on the men in your organization because they need to be educated. And many of them are willing to be educated, but we've got to share that data and that information with them. Well, and I, I think the most powerful way to communicate that, and this this is generally what I do, is I talk uh, about my desire to have women on my team. And I, I've I've got about two thirds of my senior team are women, and I'm trying to find another woman for my board because I uh, I know that the facts show that companies that have more women on leadership teams and boards are more profitable. And Truly, that is the way to break through to the men who are on the fence about this topic. Yeah, for sure. That and men with daughters. 
I have found that to be my secret weapon because in today's age, they assume their kids are going to work. You know, there are a handful of trust fund kids out there, I guess. I don't have two of my own. I I wasn't one. You weren't one. We've had to work our way up. But when you educate men about those barriers, you know, they kind of get on board with you and they understand what you're trying to break through. I've even, I once was at a a women's leadership. It was at, at Ernst & Young. And there was a man who was the executive sponsor and a really gracious guy. And I said to the women, you know, speak up, ask questions, tell people what you want gracefully and strategically. And he said to me, I don't even care if it's gracious or strategic. Just get in my office and tell me where you want to go. Let me see if I can help you. So there are plenty of people that are there for the asking. All we have to do is ask for the help, ask for the next step, the leg up. But I'm like you. I happen to work with um, pretty I have one guy on my team and the rest are all women. And it just sort of evolved that way naturally. But I just came back from a conference where there was a speaker who was talking about women on corporate boards. And it was fascinating. And she said, two women, you're absolutely right what you just said, Chicky. The research bears it out. There's a bottom line financial incentive to have women. But they said, you know, two women can sometimes cancel each other out. Go for three. Go for three women on your board. And that's, that's a home run. Because they really, they back each other up. They make sure that they're heard. And that is so critical. It's it's what the, uh, it was a group of female senators that called it amplification. You Mm -hmm. give the other woman the floor. You say, because I'll sometimes say, you know, have you ever been in that circumstance? And I'll just ask you where you've been in a situation where you throw an idea on the table and there's dead silence. And then Jim down at the other end says the same thing five minutes later. And everybody's applauding his brilliance. And I I could say that anywhere in the world, and women's heads nod. And men just aren't (laughs) aware of it. So if women understand amplification, they can say, oh, Chicky, let's let's talk about that a little bit more. It doesn't even matter if they agree or disagree. They give you ownership, and they give you the floor. And that's a critical way that women can help each other advance. So let's talk a little bit about the the generational challenges. Uh, you talked about giving uh, a lot of opportunity when when you were in uh, television broadcasting uh, to younger people, and I've I have got uh, about a third of my team are millennials, and you know with var- varying degrees of success, by the way. Right. Uh, you know, and and I would say not that they aren't talented and brilliant, but but consistency is probably the biggest. Uh, challenge that I see of keeping them you know, on task and, and focused. So what happens with hope and hip hop, as you say, or, or aging and having this <laughs> multi-generational mix? Well, we've, it's in the workforce now, and by 2020, we're going to be 60% millennials. They're going to own the workforce in about five minutes. And so I think for right, boomers, right? what's that? <laughs> Four-hour work days, yay. Yeah. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, I was fascinated when that book came out and thought, okay, let's give that a try. Um, to me, that's called my retirement career. I'm all for it. I'm not there yet, but, you know, I'm working on it. But for the millennials, and, and I've got two of my own, you've got your own, or you've got a millennial and a Gen Z, I guess, um, the, the big complaint is, oh, they're so entitled. Oh, it's everybody wins a trophy. And there's some of that, certainly. And, you know, maybe our generation is to blame for some of that. But I see 
less of that sort of entitlement, I want your job in five minutes, than I do a sense of purpose. And I see a lot of millennials that are so dedicated to let's make the world a better place. Let's do what's right. Let's work together as a team. And if as leaders, if we really encourage that mindset and drill into that sense of purpose, and it requires that we know what people are made of. We've got to know what their strengths and abilities are and what their passions are. And I think if for anybody at any level feeling valued, any career stage or, or age, you want people that, that, that acknowledge your contributions, that where you know what you're doing every day. And this counts, you know, the, the people that are, are putting books in the boxes in the warehouse if they know, hey, I, you know, I just packed up this book that's going to go out to somebody and it could change their life. If they feel that sense of passion, it doesn't matter what they do. But sometimes their leaders have to help them see there is a purpose. We need every one of you. We couldn't function. We couldn't accomplish the mission if we didn't have you in this job. And, and sometimes it's just acknowledging that in a simple way. But when leaders forget that, then people feel disengaged and disconnected, and and that takes a toll on the workplace. Right, right. Well, and and you talk about some of the other things that take a toll. Uh, Chapter 9 is actually entitled Radical Hopefulness, which, you know, knowing knowing your uh, radical approach to a lot of things in your life, uh, that one didn't surprise me. And, And I feel like we could spend a whole hour talking about that chapter because partially you know, because of your background, uh, this chapter talks about the emotional and economic toll of mental illness, when health fails, which, you know, we've all seen that movie. My my best friend, uh, you know, had ovarian cancer a number of years ago. Thankfully, you know, she came out of it unscathed. I've got a sister, you know, who's been battling uh, cancer on and off for, gosh, almost two decades now. And, and whether it's happening in your personal life or your business life, you know, it does get to you. And, and so hopefulness can actually be an antidote to all of that. And, and we're among the lucky ones, Chicky. And I know you are, you and I are both grateful for, for everything we've achieved and everything we have, but there are people who have so much less and, and my brother was, I, I, I recently became the guardian for my brother who is both schizophrenic and bipolar. And I interviewed him for the book, and he was so great to sit down with me and let me just do an author interview with him and tell his story. Because I didn't want people to think, oh, gosh, he's a schizophrenic guy. Yeah, well, he is. He also has a master's degree. He was an adjunct English professor. He taught for 26 years. He's published eight books. I mean, he's a brilliant guy, and every day he has to deal with his illness. And there, and, and mental illness, by the way, depression is the number one uh, form of disability in the workplace. So whether people think they've got to deal with these issues or not, they're pretty much dealing with them. They may not recognize them, but when they do, sometimes it can seem so overwhelming. Like, what can you and I do to, to stop homelessness? Well, actually, there's a lot. So I interviewed some people, two people who were formerly homeless. One now runs a huge program in Canada getting women out of homelessness and into jobs, and she does it through assigning them to a volunteer coach for a year. And it's an amazing story. And she shared it with me, and I tell that in my book. And another one who went from being homeless, a welfare mom, I mean, to really sad 
tragic story. Four kids on welfare, didn't know where she was going to go, and just by, you know, grace of God, she ended up on rainy days taking her kids to her local library, and she discovered business books. And by gosh, she had the guts to call up a businesswoman who helped her get into college. And then from there, she read about Condoleezza Rice and how she was part of the Brookings Institution. And this woman, at that point, barely knew what that was. She got herself into Brookings as a as a summer intern oh, and wow. a and a student, and she ended up um, working at the White House. Talk yeah. about an inspiration. And and she tells us, your name's Cosette Leary, and she's just this lovely, bigger-than-life personality, as you can imagine. But there are people that deal with these challenges and figure out how to stay hopeful and how to infuse a sense of passion and take the necessary actions. And they've dealt with things far more difficult than many of us have, myself included, and come out the other side. Well, so that that brings us to your final chapter, which is about laying out that hope roadmap. Because again, hope isn't an accident, for sure. <laughs> no, and you got to put it together in the real world. I, I I had somebody once describe me, and I'm I'm not sure if it was meant to be a compliment, but as having soaring passion and rank pragmatism. And I thought, well, thank you. I'll take that. But it's really about having that, that sense of, you know, if it's realistic, no, I'm not going to be a professional ballerina. Boy, would I love to be a Broadway singer. Not going to happen. So having a sense of reality about what you can do and going after it and then putting those actions in place step by step. And if you can't see it in the real world, to me, you know, yeah, it's a good thing to have those ideas and those wishes, but it really is wishful thinking if you don't attack it and break it down step by step and link the beliefs and the behaviors that are going to get you where you want to go. And it's it's doable. I mean, I look at my own life, how how different it is than where it was when I was a kid or a young adult. And, you know, I've written this, my fifth book. I've written this book. I've sort of reinvented my per- personal life and gotten two kids with all the challenges they've had um, through through college. I'm knocking wood. And, you know, we can do it if we if we connect with that deep, deep sense of purpose. We expect there to be some roadblocks. It's not going to be easy if you set the bar high enough. And we just continue to persevere with passion. Right. Absolutely. Well, Libby, thank you so much for sharing your Friday with us. And I'm just really excited. I haven't had a chance to dig into the book yet. Um, And it is coming out on Tuesday. That is April 12th. Is that right? April 10th. April 10th. April 10th. It's uh, on Amazon and on all the other booksellers now for pre-order. And if you, if anyone, your your listeners want to just get a little sample, just go to LibbyGill.com and you can get the first chapter. You can also pre-order the book right there. That's great. And if you're listening to this months after the launch, uh, you still want to grab a copy. I I highly recommend that you get uh, the physical book because you can sit down with a pen in hand and make notes to yourself about the things that you want to do differently. Again, she has a hopeful habits section at the end of every single chapter. And then she also summarizes that at the end of the book. And uh, Libby, I want to come back to something you said at the very beginning, uh, as, as we wind down here, you talk about hope as jet fuel for the journey of work and life. And that is just such a powerful thought. Is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, it, it's when 
you when you recognize, and I know you have a deep sense of purpose and faith, Chicky. And when you when you you get to the point where you see, oh, I get it. This is why I was plopped down on this planet. It really then you can start to really live your purpose. And there was a point when I was having one of those dark nights of the soul, and I tell the story in this book where I just connected with that inner voice, and it just sort of whispered it or shouted in my ear, hope and tools. That's that's what you've got to give, hope and tools. And I swear to you, I had no idea what that meant at the time. I was kind of looking around thinking, where did that come from? And it took me about a decade to figure out what that meant and how I was supposed to live it. And I feel like that's my purpose. That's what I'm doing. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Again, the book is called The Hope Driven Leader, Harness the Power of Positivity at Work. And the author that we have been listening to is Libby Gill. You'll want to check out all of her books. Uh, Just go to the author page on Amazon or, or your favorite bookseller. Thanks again, Libby. And for those of you who are trying to change your game, Injecting hope is a great way to start. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Chicky. Okay, take care. Talk to you soon. You are awesome. Thank you. Okay, thanks. You too, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye, honey. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chicky Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm.